Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. I didn't have a good circle of people outside the military that even understood what it meant. I looked it up. I'm like, I said, I want to find out what's going on with him. So for some reason, I looked up post-traumatic stress and I thought, oh, that's him. And to try to explain that to other people, especially people that don't live in your house 24-7, 365 days a year, they don't want to believe it because the stigma attached to that is, oh, they have a mental problem. Oh, you know, they're going to go off They're They've lost their, their, their buckets turned over, you know, and it, it's not like that, but they have moments. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. Today we are going back out to Montana to speak with Janet Austin, who is the wife of Bill Austin. And we spoke with Bill yesterday about his time in the service. And Janet represents more the military family and the, the experiences they have with their military veteran readjusting to life from the military back to civilian life. And typically, we're, we're always focused and hear about the veteran and the experiences the veteran is having, the difficulties the veteran may be having, uh, mental health issues, physical issues, readjustment issues, whatever they may be. But very seldom have, do we ever hear or understand what are the difficulties and challenges of the military family when their veteran or soldier does return from service in the military. So Janet is a very, very valuable and educated and good resource for sharing with us not only her experience, but what might be some of the resources available to the military family. And also that closeness, that hope when they hear that uh, there are other people who, who are experiencing the very same reactions to their military veteran or, or serviceman coming home. So I'll, I'll explain. Explain, give you a short background on Janet, and then we'll introduce her from Wyoming. Uh, originally from Northeast Ohio, now living in Northwest Montana, Janet has experienced the many challenges a military spouse faces in adjusting to civilian life after her husband was diagnosed with PTSD and TBI following his last tour in Afghanistan in 2009. She is a tireless advocate for military families and others who suffer through a page she has on Facebook called PTSD, The Truth in Numbers, 
She is also a staunch advocate for service dogs, working in the field for eight years and has spoken at many locations to numerous different groups, educating people on the laws surrounding them. This comes from the fact that her husband had a service dog for eight years until that, that dog, JP, died in January when he lost his battle with osteosarcoma cancer. You can follow that page on Facebook, also called JP's Journey to PTSD Service Dog. Even though JP is gone, a new puppy her husband is receiving in July will then be the focus of her page, keeping up her need to educate people so they know what's right and what's so terribly wrong with people who abuse the title wording of service dog. So let's go out and welcome Janet to our show today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is our honor to have you. And, and we're, really, we're really honored to have you specifically and, and especially because we very seldom have resources that will help us educate the experience and, and the reactions that the military family is having to their, their, their veteran coming home or their serviceman or woman coming home from the military. So the focus has typically been where the veteran is the center of health care, and we would like to be part of changing that focus to the family and the veteran being the focus of healthcare. So if you could, let's get started right away. We spoke with Bill yesterday. It was just a very, very good conversation, excellent conversation, educational conversation. But let's go back and, and have you introduce your experience in meeting Bill and him first going off into the, the different, one of different, five different conflicts that Bill was involved in, and what your expectations were of being married to a serviceman, and what your expectations were when, when Bill went off into the military. Okay. Well, let's see. We've been married 29 years. So I met him in 1990, and then we were married in 91. He was already in the military, had been for quite a few years. Didn't know that much about being a military spouse, although my mother was one when my dad was in World War II. His first tours were Bosnia in 97 and 98, and we had just bought a house in Delaware. And it was interesting to be left alone. At that point, we had three dogs, two dogs, sorry. And to be in charge of everything, I mean, the house, the bills, the maintenance, moral support for myself, moral support for him. And way back then, there wasn't cell phones with overseas availability. And we had a little email system that we used to, to communicate back and forth. And it was a change. This email system, what was the, what was the time duration between sending one and receiving a reply to one? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. And I had a little old boxy computer that sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. <laughs> sometimes there was a connection, sometimes there wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you go back and you, you raise some interesting points, though, which I don't think a lot of us are aware of. You're res you, you were responsible for paying the bills. You were resp responsible for the moral upkeep or the maintaining the house, maintaining the family. Was this frightening or is this something that you, you, you were okay with? It wasn't frightening. It did keep me occupied. It kept my mind on what I needed to have done more than worrying about what was happening to him. So in a way, it's a positive and a negative because 
me personally trying to keep myself extremely busy at all times, which is a good thing and a bad thing, it didn't bother me. As long as he was safe, I, I knew everything else I could handle. That's an excellent point, as long as you knew he was safe. And I've often wondered about that. Even though we, the soldiers, are off in the battlefield or wherever we are, we always know where we are. We know if we're in trouble. We know if we're in danger. We know if we're not in danger. For you at home, the challenge, I would think, would be that you don't know. It's more in your imagination. Is he okay? Is she okay? Uh, how do you deal with that, that anxiety, I think it would be called? I keep a stiff upper lip. I know that if someone isn't knocking on my door, that he is still fine. And you have to go back to when Bosnia was going on in 1997 and 1998. There wasn't wide range news coverage of what was happening in, in that area at that time. All that started with Desert Shield and Desert Storm and then Afghanistan and Iraq. Then it was, it, you were bombarded with it on the news. And when he went off to those conflicts, I, I wouldn't watch the news. I told family members, please don't tell me what's going on. I, I don't want to know because it'll just make me worry. You know, uh, his mother would say, did you hear a helicopter? I don't want to know. What, what, what about the telephone ringing or a knock at the door? Were, were you in the background always worried about getting bad news? Yes. Yes. I, I always feared you know, if someone rang my doorbell, I'd peek out the side to see who was out there before I actually opened the door. If it was UPS, I was okay. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but again, I think I, I could only ask, but I would imagine that this sort of strain and this sort of anxiety or this sort of worrying would only be building up to the moment that Bill actually comes home and you see him. And, and that's got to be just an outpouring of emotion when he actually returns. Absolutely, it is. And knowing what his job was made me nervous. And let's go back and tell the, the audience his job was he was he was a flight medic, right? Very dangerous job. And I knew he was on the ground and, and I knew the areas were not friendly. He wasn't in a green zone. You know, some of the guys would deploy to Kuwait or something like that. And it was pretty calm. But he was right there in, in Bagram, the first trip to Afghanistan, 2002. And then when he was in Iraq, when he came back, I knew he was different. Nobody believed me, but I knew. I knew then, and that was six, seven years before he was ever diagnosed. Something had changed him. And you knew that immediately when he came home? Yeah. He wasn't the same jolly, happy-go-lucky guy that he always was. He was more intense more keyed. Was he, was he intellectually or, or emotionally more distant? I would say probably emotionally. And, you know, as a spouse, you think, okay, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> then you have to turn that around and go, wait a minute, considering where he just came from, maybe it's not me. You have to learn. That's something that I've learned in all these years, even since his diagnosis is don't take it personal. It's not you. They have outbursts. They have moments, you know, issues that bother them. You have to kind of not feed into that and separate yourself. I remember when we were living in Delaware, when he would have an outburst or something, I would go sit in the garage until it was over just because I know if I said anything, I mean, anything, it could be 
misconstrued and he would take it wrong and then turn that anger maybe on me. So I would just leave, go into a different room. Uh, let me ask you this, Janet. This is really excellent information and very educational. But what, before Bill came home, the military, and I'm not being critical of the military, but no one ever gave you any idea that you might be expecting this. And if you were to, if in expecting it, if it turned out to be true that you were having these difficulties, you were not prepared for this. There, there was no resources available to you. Call this number if you're struggling. You really had to learn all of this on your own. Correct. And I'm, and I never was one of those wives that hung out at the base and, and hung out with the other wives. I, I, it just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I'm sorry if, you know, if that sounds uh, crass, but I had my own set of friends and I didn't feel the need to be in that, that circle that can be so constricting and confining, you know, and then those wives are all doing the same thing, you know, worry, worry, worry all the time. But no, there was, there was nobody to tell me, you know, if he comes back, he could be different or he might have a problem with readjustment. That, I never heard that word until he came back in 2009, readjustment. Right. Or, or if he does have that problem, here's a number to call. Here's a resource to call. There were no resources for wives, not then. Okay. And I don't know how many there are now. I know that the vet center offers counseling for wives, but there was no Elizabeth Dole Foundation and and gary sinise foundation and all that kind of stuff back then it was that was all new you know after the twin towers then they started to do more i think for the spouses so so walk us through your experience you mentioned this you didn't recognize it right away but over the years you started to recognize it so you're, you're watching this develop but you're, this is also your husband this is somebody who you having a family with, you're in love with, you're, you have expectations yourself when Bill comes home. What were your expectations actually before he came home? What did you expect was going to happen? I, I'm assuming you had dreams that he'd come home, you, you'd be going to movies, there'd be the romance, there'd be all the fun, uh, life would be better. I expected that when he came home, it would turn off and he would go back to the person he was when he was at home prior to those tours. There would... I guess I thought there was a switch, you mm -hmm. know, that once he left the, the battlefields or the war zones, that when he came home, once he got home, he would realize, oh, phew, everything's great now. But it mm -hmm. wasn't that way. It, again, you're recognizing this. I'm, I'm not so sure that we don't, we, we understand what a shock or a trauma that is to have this person come home who you really don't know all that well and have changed your dreams and your expectations to now something that you're, you're experiencing, but you're, you're not sure exactly how to respond to it or how to react or what, what are the, the resources that you can look up. And, and in the wake of not having any resources, how did you go through this over the years? Well, until I started the page on Facebook, it was difficult at times. There, there weren't people at his military installation that wanted to talk about it because the whole topic of post-traumatic stress is so taboo in the military. And I didn't have a good circle of people outside the military that even understood what it meant. I looked it up. I'm like, I said, I want to find out what's going on with him. So for some reason, I looked up post-traumatic stress and I thought, oh, that's him. 
And to try to explain that to other people, especially people that don't live in your house 24 7, 365 days a year, they don't want to believe it because the stigma attached to that is, oh, they have a mental problem. Oh, you know, they're going to go off. They're, they've lost their, their, their buckets turned over, you know, and it, it's not like that, but they have moments. If we go back to that stigma that you mentioned, did you feel the stigma? Did you feel any stigma that this is my husband? He's a soldier. We're not supposed to have this problem. It shouldn't exist. So I'm not going to tell anyone. Did did you hesitate to even discuss this with other people? I hesitated to discuss it with some people because I knew their reaction was, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have that. And I'm like, "Um, yes, he does. Because I'm living with it every day. You know, people that would come to visit, you know, if someone came to your house to visit, there was old, there was old Bill, old social, happy-go-lucky Bill, you know, and then those people would leave and he'd go back to withdrawn Bill. So he could, he could turn that off when there were people around, but it's more difficult to turn that off when you're living with that person. So, so what he had really developed, which a lot of us did, was that facade to show the world we're okay. He, he, of course, was probably dealing with the stigma of not showing that anything was wrong. So he was able to show the world that he was fine, but not maintain it when, when those people weren't around. Right. And that says something about his comfort zone with me, is that he was comfortable enough to just be how he was with me. But when other people were around, he had to put out the, oh, I'm happy. Life is good. You know, I don't have any problems. But how perceptive of you to to recognize that or to understand that, that he was safe with you. I, I'm not sh- sure that that would be the first reaction most spouses would have. Safe. Yeah, that's a good word. Safe is a good is a good word to to utilize for that safe. That's right. that's that's a great explanation for that. I don't know if he didn't feel safe around other people, but I think maybe he thought their expectations were different than what mine were. Right. Bill had mentioned to us yesterday, and, and this this must be difficult, and if it is, uh, I, I want to make sure that, I, that I'm asking this respectfully. Bill mentioned for several years you guys weren't uh, slept in different bedrooms because of his physical reactions if he were startled awake, uh, you know, the the... the not hitting, but just the defensive moves he had with his arms. Weren't these kind of heartbreaking for you? I, I mean, I know you're a, a strong woman yourself and you put, out, you, you put on that, but at, at times, did you ever have the sense you just want to go and cry somewhere or you want to just go and, you know, what about me? There was twice that he hit me, but he had been asleep and I went to wake him up and I didn't learn, but I learned now. I learned later. You have to stay out of the strike zone. Right. <laughs> or out of the room. <laughs> uh, or out of the room. Yell from across the room, get up. No. <laughs> but when he would hit me, it was funny because he, when he would wake up, he would be in almost like a dazed look on his face. Like he didn't know where he was or, or who I was. And he would blink a little while and it would seem like he would come back. And when he would, and the the two times he hit me, instead of crying in front of him, I once again took myself my little pack of cigarettes, sorry, and went and sat in the garage and I would cry there. Because for him to see me cry because he hurt me just exasperated the situation. 
interesting that it was just interesting that you would have that insight that even though you were be the person hit and again wanting to be careful with this you were the person who was hit you were the person who was smoking the cigarette you were the person who was crying you were much more concerned that it would make him feel bad that, that that's extraordinary i i'm not so sure that everybody could have that reaction or that understanding you know we 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 took vows for better for worse sickness and health he was sick ptsd is a sickness and how long did this go on it was two years I slept on the sofa downstairs and he slept in our room upstairs. And the reason why I separated myself from him was because of his knee jerk reaction that if someone touched him, he's going to swing. So I figured in, in order for his to benefit his mental health, if I wasn't in the room and he accidentally swung at me, it wouldn't affect him. Does that make sense? It absolutely it makes sense. But it not just that two years, but this this obviously has continued had continued much longer than just the two years in other regards in, in the regards of him putting on the facade for the family, his other extended family, for the neighbors, for friends, and you having to deal with the, the PTSD. Were there other things that, that he was doing? that were difficult for you? For example, not having an interest in things that might have been interesting for you as a couple before he went off to war? Well, that's that still is present in today's date. There are events. We live in Northwest Montana, which you know, and our summer season is extremely short. So they pack tons of events into that very short window of summer. And he would say, oh, I want to go to this. And I'd say, okay, we'll go to that. And as we'd get closer to that event, he would say, did we pay money for that? And I'd say, no, no, we didn't. And he'd go, oh, okay. And then as we get a little closer, I'd say, do you still want to go to that event? And he'd go, no, I don't think so. I think there'll be too many people. And that's the thing with him was the crowds would make him crazy because there's no way to control your environment. And that's where JP benefited him a lot because JP knew to block. He would stand in front of him if someone was coming towards him or stand behind him and lean into him. So he knew there was someone, someone coming up from behind him because Bill's initial reaction, if someone was to tap him on the shoulder, and that's still the same today, is to turn around with his fist at the startle response. Let's just yes. remind the audience when we're re when you're speaking of JP, you're you're speaking of uh, of Bill's service dog. Bill's service dog, yes. Yeah, he he saved his life. Yeah, well, he mentioned that several several times yesterday that it was going out and being in crowds, uh, any place where he was hyper vigilant, and I think many of us recognize that where in our minds, in our hearts, we'd love to go out and and go to these events, uh, concerts, or the 4th of July fireworks, or baseball games. But we know when we get there, it's just not going to be comfortable because of that hypervigilance. Correct. And, and, you, and you can't expect the public to realize that that's going to be your response. But when, you know, but when people were to tap him on the shoulder or, you know, holler, hey, Bill, or whatever, he turns around with his fists up, then people are like, Whoa, what, what did yeah. I do? 
Yeah. And, and it's not what did I do just for that moment? Then it becomes this guy's dangerous. Uh, let's not call the Austins for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, find somebody else to hang out with. Well, what, 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 were there any other reactions that you had with Bill that you were not familiar with, didn't expect that were difficult for you? Well, his sleep patterns are, are erratic at best. And the hypervigilance can be good and bad. The hyperfocus, if he gets to working on a project, he's going to work on that project until it's done. Don't bother me. Don't talk to me. I'm working on this. I, th I think most housewives would like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to complete the project. I know my wife would like that. <laughs> But when you know, going back and, and, and speaking about that, the sleep issue that I think is probably one of the biggest indicators that there's difficulty for a lot of us is that sleep problem. You've already mentioned that if you try to wake him uh, during the night, you'll have difficulties. But just his general sleep without without the awakening, without the arm swinging, is a difficult is difficult for Bill. Yes, and he recently had uh, rotator cuff surgery a month ago, and. With the coronavirus and all this, of course, I wasn't allowed to be in the hospital. And when he went for his pre-op work, I said to the person at the front of the hospital, I said, I need to come in. There's something I have to tell you. And so they came back from, came out from the operating room. And I said, when you go to wake him up, tap him on his feet because his reaction is to swing at you. So I, I wanted to make sure they knew so that he didn't wake up from his anesthesia swinging like he was in a bar fight. Did, did they thank you for that heads up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, I wasn't, I wasn't in there when they woke him up, but everybody looked to be, there were no black eyes. So I think it worked. Yeah, it's, it, it worked, worked pretty fine. good. But okay, so let's go back just a little bit. Now you you had the difficulty with sleeping in different bedrooms because of the the arm swinging. The difficulty with not being able to enjoy so some social events because of the hypertension or, or the hypervigilance and the reactions he might have, uh, the anxiety that he might have for participating in that. Just the general sleep pattern. When you're seeing all of these things, when you're experiencing all of these things. Did you ever reach out anywhere privately to mental health or to the VA or anywhere looking or even to the military and ask, what is going on here? What can I do? Once the military, and I'm going to use the term dumped him, which is basically what they did. They just dumped him, wrote him off, checked the box. He's done. They were gone. They, they, were, they were no support at all. I did go with him to some of his therapy appointments at the vet center and would explain, you know, some of the issues that I saw that maybe he wouldn't tell them about, like, you know, how he behaves in public and, and the, the thought of, of swinging uh, before anything else. And that, that, it seemed to me from the therapist's response that that's pretty much a standard response to guys that suffer from PTSD. You want to be in the restaurant with your back where you can see the doors. That way, you know, nobody's coming up behind you and you can see the exits for the need to get out. And being out here where we are, there are some veterans and so a lot of them are young and it's, it's sad, but there's a lot of them that are young that live up in the hills and the only time they come down is to go to that VA appointment and then back up in the hills they go. Because the that's- Isolation. Right. The isolation 
question and their peace. That's why we moved out here to find peace. He didn't smile. for When he came back from Afghanistan in 2009, he never smiled. For two years, he didn't smile until we got JP, his puppy. Wow. That's he didn't powerful. smile. He didn't laugh. He wasn't, he wasn't, it, it didn't seem to me like he was enjoying life. He, he was suffering inside from something that I couldn't fix. Right. And nothing was funny anymore. I, I, I think a lot of us experience that coming home from war, that there's nothing makes us laugh. What, what, what we have seen is so profoundly barbaric and sad and heartbreaking that nothing really makes us laugh, except for, as we mentioned in our conversation with, with Bill yesterday, that military humor that laughs at things that might even be dark. Right. And, and would come home from his tours and see people in the United States complaining about this little, uh, this thing or that thing or, or an issue going on. And he would say things like they have no clue. <laughs> That's what he mentioned. Well, but but it's really true. But at the same time, a lot of us have to realize eventually or learn one of the reasons that we typically take the military to other countries is that so you don't understand. I would think if we all came home and our families understood exactly what we experienced at war, we would have failed at our jobs. But that is one of the things that we see. It's difficult to to understand that they're not supposed to understand because that was our job. Let's we'll take the military and the war out of this country. There's no war here, so that way Americans, for the most part, are not going to know war. So it's I've always thought that was kind of curious that we would go off to war, fight our wars outside of the country to protect the people in America and the country from understanding or experiencing war, and then we come home and we get upset that they don't understand us. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's one. Of, it's one of I wouldn't call it the burden. It's one of the the things we have to respect as soldiers that we've accomplished our job in that regard. Yes, and and the people back here, you know, that that didn't realize, didn't notice the change, that thought, oh, he's fine. No, he's not. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, he's he's different now, and I think that's maybe one reason why in our house out here. There is nothing on the walls that has anything to do with his military service. And he had a lot of awards. He had a big rack of ribbons on his dress uniform, but it's all tucked away because for maybe for him, this was a fresh start, you know, leave all that in the box and I don't have to see it or, or, or deal with it. I know it's there in that (laughs) box, but this, this is my fresh start. I can start my life over somewhere that I want to be where people don't know the old me, they just know the new me. Right. I I think for a lot of us, we don't need the ribbons to remind us because it's there without the ribbons. We close our eyes and every day, some of those memories are going to resurface. Uh, So we we can see the memories and feel the memories without the the pictures and and the medals on the wall. They're there anyways. Right. And then if people see that, they're like, oh, you did this, you did that, you did this. Well, these might be things that he doesn't want to talk about anymore. Sure. sure. Or, or need to talk about. Uh, right. Or need to talk about need anymore. need to talk about. I, I've known you for quite a while, followed you with your PTSD, The Truth in Numbers. And let's, let me ask you this. We, we talk about these reactions to war or, or military service when our, when our soldier comes home. 
tell us the difference between mental health issues and educational issues, because you have spent a lot of time posting educational information on how to deal with these reactions and, and what are the resources available. And I think that has been very valuable in helping people understand that this isn't about a stigma. This isn't about something to be ashamed of. This is an educational issue of understanding what the reactions are and how to deal with them, how to resolve them. It, it, does that make sense to you? It, it does. And when when I when he came back and there was, of course, you know, limited, if any, help for me. And I thought, well, I have to find it on my own. And and to find out in today's society, there there's so much more available that I can find. There's equine therapy. There's ganglion blocks. There's endless poetry, music, uh, outdoors. Uh, right. Guitars, guitars um, for hiking. There's sure. CBD. There's marijuana if it works for you. Sure. There, yeah, you absolutely. Know? The outdoors, hiking. And I don't discriminate anybody. If, if it works for if if you pick a therapy and it works for you, then I'm happy for you. Absolutely. It may not, it may not be that therapy works for everybody else or the next guy, but if it worked for you, that's good. That's all that matters that is that it helped one person. I, I agree with you 100%. And I would add to that, that you may have to try some of these different ones. And there are, there are a whole list. I know down in Texas, they have hunters helping veterans. You know, they take them out hunting or they take them out fishing. There's all of these different activities for them. And I think intuitively a veteran knows, yeah, I would like to do that. For example, somebody came to me and said, well, why don't you write this in poetry? It never stimulated one thought in my head that, yes, I would like to do that. Uh, but there were other things that have. Uh, nature is a very big one for me. But when we continue on and think of this as issues that have to be resolved, and you mentioned, and it's heartbreaking, but in our conversation today, what sticks with me is you say these young veterans come out of the mountains for their, for their therapy once a month and then go back up to hide in the hills. That's just such, such so heartbreaking because if we distinguish between mental health and focus on the education to resolve these different issues, these guys would understand that they can peel back and go inside of themselves and resolve these issues with what would be, to me, education. It, it always startled me that when we go off to war, when we enter the military, they give us substantial education in how to use the different weapons, how to do battlefield medicine, whatever it is that we need to know, to know what to do if we're ambushed. There's education involved. But now when we get out, the mental health profession understood that we needed the training to enter the military. But now when we come out, there's no real education on how to make the transition back from the military to civilian life. And I think that's what's really important to get the message to these guys, these, these veterans up in the mountains, that you can do this with education by peeling back and resolving those issues. Would, does that make any sense to you, Janet? It does. And, and I agree. And I think that how everyone deals with post-traumatic stress is uniquely individual to that person. You can throw books at people. They may not read them. They might read them. Therapy, you can, you know, it could help. Maybe some guys don't want to do therapy. They don't want to talk about it. Maybe they find another way. As you mentioned in Texas, out here we have Montana Wounded Warriors, and they take guys out on hunting trips. And Bill's been three times. And last year, no, maybe two years ago, 
He took his first fly fishing trip. He'd never fly fished before, and he had a great time. And it, ge- it gives him a period of time. I don't care if it's an hour, three hours, four hours. It gives you a period of time to focus your mind on something besides what is eating you. I think that's so very important to understand that. And it's not just eating you, but a lot of times in my experience with veterans that I, I speak with, including my own experience, when we come home, we'll hear Janet's story about she doesn't really understand her husband when he came home. What a lot of people don't understand is we, the veteran, we don't understand ourselves. We don't really know ourselves because we don't know what these reactions are. Why am I coming home and I can't sleep at night? Why am I coming home and I have nightmares? Why didn't I have nightmares when I was on the battlefield? Why am I having them now? Why don't I care about anything? Why don't I want to be with my friends? Why, why am I isolating? Why am I living up in the hills? Why don't I? And you can go on and on with this whole thing. Why am I so full of rage? Why am I so full of guilt? You don't know who you are anymore, but with education can be resolved. My, my question is, though, who do they turn to to educate them besides those of us that are also living it? There are plenty of studies out there on oh, this works, this works, that works. But, you know, there's retreats, things like that. But there, is like, there isn't like a block of educational instructions to, that I know of to help that sufferer, let alone the family members. I know wives that have kids and, and the kids say, why is dad so angry? There was actually one veteran and I don't know his name and he wrote a book about that why is dad so angry so not only the spouses but the kids see it the kids see that difference not only see it but they must feel it they must feel the distancing the emotional distancing of of the or, or yeah why you know dad left he was happy he was lucky we played ball we did yeah. this we did that now I come back and all he wants to do is yell at me and yeah. what did I do yeah and doesn't talk to me, never smiles, never laughs. They, they, of course, right. they see it. They see it all. You had mentioned something earlier in a conversation that we had where you were off with Bill getting therapy. He was getting his therapy, and I don't remember exactly what the circumstances were. And they, they asked him, how about you, Bill? And you were thinking to yourself, well, how about me? Oh, right. That was when he first came back and was was diagnosed with it. You know, family members and and would call and go, oh, how's Bill? Oh, how's Bill? Oh, how's Bill? <laughs> and I finally got mad and I said, what about me? Yeah, I'm what? living this too. Yeah. I, don't, I don't suffer the way he does, but I also suffer because my normal life has also changed substantially, let alone his. Right. So l- let me ask you this, Janet. When, when he went off to, let's say, Afghanistan or off to his different deployments, was there the patriotic? celebrations, him and Bill in his dress uniform and the family there, and we're sending him off and here's our hero and that sort of thing? No. No, No. when he went on his last tour and he went to Camp Leatherneck, Camp Leatherneck, Afghanistan, the only person there was me and his mom. For the send-off. Yeah, that was it. That was it. There was no send-off. There wasn't his higher-ups going, oh, don't worry, you'll be great. We'll see you on the other side. (laughs) Nothing else. There were no parades. And when he came home in the middle of the night, I went down with a, a couple of the military people from his unit and, you know, to pick him up at the airport. But, you know, three o'clock in the morning, there weren't people f- waving flags and, and, you know, and 
welcome home, soldier. That that didn't exist. Let, let me ask you this. This is a little bit of a tough question. You don't have to answer it. Were, were there ever the this, even the passing conversation about suicide? Bill has always said, and this is going to sound really harsh, and I'm sorry, but he said he would he would never contemplate suicide. He would kill someone else first. Isn't that something? So if we have this thinking, and what we've talked about for the better part of 45 minutes is the focus has really been on the veteran. Would it be helpful if the veteran, and I, I think this is crucial thinking, if the veteran would understand that the focus of the healthcare is not just on himself or herself as the veteran, but on the entire family, would it help if the veteran were to understand that at least I should go and seek help for my family's sake, for my wife's sake, for my husband's sake, for my parents' sake. They're suffering. They can see this. They're not entitled. This is not the obligation of a soldier to bring this home to his family. Would that be an incentive for a veteran to actually go get help? If going back to the book you mentioned, I think you, you said I don't, he doesn't smile anymore. He doesn't laugh anymore. Uh, yeah, why is dad so mad? Yeah, why is dad so mad? If that's the case, this should be a strong incentive for veterans to go and get the help for the sake of their families. But I think we've been so good at removing the veteran from the family as a healthcare unit. And I think we need to put that back together. I think a veteran would be, I, I certainly would have been more inclined to go and get help because it was almost 40 years after I returned from Vietnam that my sister said to me, Mike, your family also needs to heal. I had never thought about that. I had always thought, well, I'm the veteran. I'm the one who suffered. I'm the one who experienced war. It's about me. They sh why, why would they suffer? They weren't at war. But their suffering is a different type of suffering. And I think through the, the whole concept of what you've been up doing and been involved in and, and been doing very, very consistently is finding educational resources for us all as veterans and as family members to help us with his reactions, to better understand them and, and to better resolve them. I think a lot of the reason why the veterans or even the active duty guys that come back, they don't want to say, oh, I, have, I think I have a problem. I'm suffering. I think they don't want to let others know that they're suffering, let alone that their family's suffering because it makes them feel less of a man of a woman there is the power of the stigma that that is a very good description of the stigma itself i don't want to tell anybody that i'm suffering because then people are going to look at me differently so if the veteran doesn't get help how how does that how does that help his family it, it doesn't it doesn't at all and, and i think part part of the issue is this this sense for the soldier of I have to maintain or uh, keep up my obligations as a man or a woman or as a soldier. And yet when we stop and think about it, what we've experienced in the war, it's only very common to have these responses. And, and the same as we would in anything else in life, if we educate ourselves rather than buy into this stigma thing, it would keep us, keep a lot of us from going the route of alcohol and, and drugs and depression and isolation uh, and, and give us a better chance more quickly to find some happiness in life. And I, I blame a lot of that stigma on the way veterans are portrayed on television and the way the news reports it. You know, Joe Black ran his car off the side of the road and you know, and hit someone. 
And then the news reporters go, oh, I bet he had PTSD. (laughs) Or on a TV show, you know, the the veteran does something and they go into his house and they look at his medicine vials and they go, oh, I bet he has PTSD. Or they'll say, well, even with anybody in society that does something wrong, they immediately jump to using the buzzword of post-traumatic stress as as an excuse for bad behavior. And so the general public's view of anybody that suffers from that is they're all ticking time bombs. And and that was the thing too with JP, he had Bill Service Dog, he had a patch on his vest that said PTSD Service Dog. Some people would look at that vest and step back because of the stigma. Yeah. That, that was already the indication that Bill had some kind of an issue. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and I, think, I, I think that has been one of the great mistakes and responsibilities of the mental health profession, that they came up with this absurd, ridiculous term, PTSD, that nobody even, most people don't even know the words behind it. Most people don't even know the symptoms, but it is so stigmatizing, especially lumping war veterans in with people that have fallen off their bicycle and scraped their knee. But it has been, it has probably done as much damage, if not more than anything else, is the stigma of that name for veterans. That's just my firm belief because I've been there. And and I think, I think it would be our message for veterans if we're looking for educational resources, if we're looking for them as family members, military families, would be to look to other veterans and other family members for some sort of guidance in how we have dealt with the experiences we had either in the military or as military families. And that just makes so much sense, but it's also the hope. And that's, of course, the background of why we're doing this podcast. So, so now you had mentioned in your autobiography, or your biography, not autobiography, but in your biography, the, the work that you're continuing to do with service dogs. Could you kind of take a few minutes and we'll close up the show with the work that you're doing and how important that is and what are the benefits of, of the service dog for the, for the veterans? The benefits, the benefits of the service dog for the veteran is it gives them a reason to go on. They have to, they have to be aware enough that that dog needs to eat, that dogs needs to go to the bathroom, that dog needs to be groomed. It gives them a purpose besides the fact that the dog also has that purpose. I can't explain exactly but JP brought the, the light back into Bill's life and gave Bill a purpose. But people today, because of all the internet mumbo jumbo that says, certify your dog, take him anywhere. It just drives me crazy because that's not how it is. Under the ADA guidelines, you have to have a disability in order to have a service dog. These people that go out and want to take Fido to the grocery store instead of leaving him at home, so they slap a vest on, then the dog gets into the restaurant or the store and misbehaves or or soils the store. That's not a trained dog. And our purpose with that is to make sure people know that there are different stages. There's a therapy dog. That's a dog that people train to take to hospitals and nursing homes. They're there to provide comfort to other people. 
the category of emotional support animal. You've seen them, the parakeets, the gerbils, the snakes. Basically, what that is, is it's a glorified pet that when you pet that animal, it makes you feel good. A service animal has to have a task. By law, a task. It has to provide a task. Emotional support animals, they don't provide a task. Petting your dog because the dog makes you feel better is not a task. Service dogs are specifically trained to provide that task to one person. One person. And by law, businesses can ask, is it a service dog? Yes or no. And what task does it provide? They can't say, oh, what's your disability? Or I need to see your paperwork. Because under federal guidelines, there is no such thing as a certificate that says your dog passed. That's not how it works. But that's what they sell you on the internet. So then you have businesses that think, oh, well, this this guy's coming in with this dog. I have to ask him for a certificate. There is no such thing. It's bogus. So when we go out to educate people, I try to break down the laws and what's true and what's not, while Bill would give his experiences as how JP helped him to cope. And JP was big. He was a great Dane, which people don't, won't know that's listening to this. And Bill has problems with mobility. So when he would go to get up from a sitting position, JP's harness had a handle on it and he could put his hand on that harness and JP would pull him up. That's a task. But there's so many people out there, and I can't tell you how many times I've written TV shows or movies or whatever or newspaper articles about, you're wrong, you've classified that dog wrong, you know, or, or you see the, the dog is missing. Oh, please help find him. He's my emotional support animal. Okay, he's your pet. Well, let, let's go on. For those who would be interested, let, let's remind them again of your, actually your two Facebook pages that deal with not just the service dogs, but where you provide general information for military families. My PTSD page on Facebook is called PTSD, the truth and numbers. It is a closed group because that gives people that want to comment on the links that I pull privacy. So you have to ask to join and you ask and I will get a notification that says someone wants to join. That's fine. JP's Journey is an open page on Facebook, which kind of chronicled JP's life. And I would also list articles that were viable as to what a service dog is and provides and what a service dog isn't and doesn't provide. So that his page was twofold. People got to watch as JP grew from a puppy to a full-fledged service dog and our, our adventures as a family and, and things like that. There was an incident three years ago back in Delaware where a, a girl screamed at us in a restaurant because she did not like the dog there. I mean, screamed. She called me words I won't even say. But the, the point is JP had every right to be there whether she liked it or not. And we got Nash, the oh, Bill was on CNN, all kinds of different things. We were, we were traveling back. They found us, we were pulling our camper. They found us in Rapid City, North Dakota or South Dakota. And we're like, how did they find us here? But it was good and it was bad. It was bad because this, this person screamed at us. It was good because it gave us another window to 
teach people what's right and what's wrong. Interesting. Let me let me share this now. I'm so grateful for you coming on and sharing this information and so grateful for the years that you have spent educating us and helping the military families to better understand all of these reactions that, that Bill had and, and that many of us have. But I, what I would like to reach out and say to a lot of veterans, and I'm still stuck with these guys, uh, these veterans up in the hills that come down just for their therapy. You know, one thing to keep in mind, if you had a really good friend that you served with in the military who was going through what you're going through, what would you tell that person to do? What's the advice you would have for somebody that was feeling the, the, the reaction that you're having? And, and secondly, I would, I would mention to think about your families and if it's within your your possibilities to seek some help and get the education to resolve the issues you have for the sake of your families. But also I would do it just for the sake of, if you're getting into the bottle, if you're getting into the drugs, eventually you're going to have to come out of those. And the sooner we deal with our reactions to war and understand that there, through education, there are resolutions, there is understanding, there is acceptance, and there is a way past this, but you have to take the steps to look for them. I would encourage every one of our veterans and those of us that are involved with this podcast are veterans who have been there. We are, as Janet, families who have been there, and we are people who reach out because we know the difficulties of these experiences so that other folks don't have to go through this. Would that be a good summing up, Janet? Yes, I think that's good. And the Bill has a young veteran friend who suffers, and he'll call Bill. It doesn't matter what hour of the day or night it is. If he has a problem, he calls Bill. So Bill helps him walk through whatever the issue is that is bothering him at the current time. He had lost friends who committed suicide and young troops that he had served with. and he would call Bill, you know, how, how, how do I deal with this? You know, I, I think that's excellent advice and excellent suggestion. There are veterans, find someone who has similar experiences to yours and don't hesitate to call them because we've all been there and we're, we're happy to reach out to you. And I want to remind all of our listeners, again, if they'd like to find more on Janet's work, they can go onto Facebook at PTSD, The Truth in Numbers. It's a closed page, but you can ask to be accepted into the group. And then JP's Journey for Service Dogs. And if there are any other questions, please don't hesitate to go to our Stigma-Free Vet Zone page and leave us a message, and we would be happy to provide some resources for you. But Janet, you are one of my heroes. I'm so grateful for what you do and keep up the good work and have a last word for us. I hope these podcasts help people to know that there are options besides suicide, that there are other things that you can do. There are things you can focus on that are positive, not saying it's going to get rid of the negative, but at times maybe it can hide the negative a little bit if you focus on the positives. Janet Austin from Western Montana, thank you so much for joining us. And I encourage you all and our audience, come and join us again for the next episode of Stigma Free Vet Zone. Thank you, Janet. Thanks, Mike. And thank you to Iris, who is doing the engineering on our show today. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. 
You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.